John chapter 20, verse 20, 24. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Okay, very good. Is that it? Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I won't believe it. Pray with me. Fathers, we come to you today and we read this passage and what follows. How powerful. <laughs> the greatest moment in all of history is about to come up. And we get, to, we get to read about it. What a joy. I pray that you would help us, just as you did with Thomas, how much like him we are. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You can be seated. This morning's message is entitled, Standing in the Shadow of Doubt. Standing uh, in the Shadow of Doubt. Now this is a message on Thomas. We're going to look at him and his life just briefly this morning. But Thomas is forever known as a doubter. Do you ever doubt? Now, publicly, and of course, I'm the pastor, you're going to say, of course not, pastor. Never doubted a moment in my, our life, uh, or in my life, but uh, to yourself and to your God, do you ever doubt? The scientist might say, I can't believe the Bible because it conflicts with science. Or the mother of a sick child could be heard saying, I can't believe in a God who per permits my precious child to suffer when so many evil people thrive in this world. Or maybe it's a lawyer who says, I'm used to dealing with evidence and with facts and data and logic. I can't believe in something we're asked to accept on faith. A business person might explain, I prayed my business would succeed and it's going down the tubes. I can't believe in a God who ignores my prayers. I've heard excuses very similar to these uh, many times over the years and perhaps you have as well. Now Thomas has been given a bad rap throughout the centuries because we know him as Doubting Thomas. But to be fair to him, I don't think his struggles were really any different than any of the rest of the disciples. They had their doubts too, and we're going to see that today. Um, if Thomas were here, to be fair to him, he's not here, but if he could come down to earth and preach this sermon, which would be awesome, by the way, I would love to hear what he had to say. I think the first thing he'd say is, stop calling me Doubting Thomas. That was one incident. He had a whole life and a whole ministry before, during, and after Jesus, and and yet he's remembered for one thing, uh, doubting. What do we know about Thomas? Well, first, Thomas was likely, believe it or not, a fisherman by trade. I don't know why. I've always thought he was a, a, a lawyer or something like that. I don't know why, but sorry, lawyers. Uh, but he was probably a fisherman in John chapter 21. John, the writer, includes Jesus with several other disciples who joined Peter fishing all night. Secondly, Thomas was a follower of Jesus. Of course, we already know that. He was a disciple of Jesus, though, from his earliest days. That is, <coughs> during the three-year ministry of Jesus, he was with Jesus the entire time. And he made that choice to follow Christ and 
leave everything that he had and invest himself as a student and a learner. He was a disciple, one of the 12, and then later became an apostle. Third, we know that Thomas was loyal and committed. I think if Thomas were here, he would want you to focus on that, uh, how many people or how often we forget that he actually was a great disciple. For example, in John chapter 11, Jesus was sitting with his disciples one day, and he got word that his friend Lazarus was ill. Now, Jesus already knew that Lazarus was going to die. He would be in the tomb for four days. And so Jesus delayed because he wanted him to have been in the tomb for four days. And there's a big, long story behind that. He, he, he's the God of the impossible. And resurrecting somebody from the dead is impossible. Resurrecting somebody that's been dead for four days is completely impossible. They had no idea Jesus had that kind of power and authority. The disciples had no idea. And they needed to get it. They needed to have an idea. And so he delayed. And so he's talking to his disciples. And after a few days, he says, we're going to go back there. We're going to go to Bethany. Well, he'd been threatened when he was in Bethany. Bethany's just right outside Jerusalem. And his life had been threatened. And the safety of himself and the disciples was in question, not by Jesus, but by the disciples. And Thomas spoke up when Jesus told him they were going to go back. He didn't give Jesus a hard time about it. He didn't say, hey, that's not safe. I don't want to go. Uh, and interestingly enough, it wasn't Peter who spoke up. It was Thomas. And Thomas said, let us go back so that we may die with him, which was a brave thing. Let, let's go. I'm ready to die. Uh, for my Savior. And so he was a loyal and committed follower. He was also confused. In John chapter 14, during the Last Supper, Jesus was preparing his disciples for what is about to happen. In just a few hours, he's going to be arrested, tried, and then crucified. And uh, he's, he, he knows they're going to go through a lot of grief at that point. And he wants to prepare them. They're clueless. They don't have a clue. He told them. They didn't believe him. They didn't listen. I'm not sure we listen any better, but they didn't listen to word he said when it came to his death and his burial and his resurrection. And, and now they would get it later, but they didn't get it then. And so he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Remember that famous passage, believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going to, uh, go, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And, uh, that, and I'm, then I'm going to come get you and you know where, the place where I'm going. Well, they didn't know the place where he's going. They're all sitting there completely clueless. What is he talking about? Where's he going? He's going to go into town. Is he going to go up to Galilee? Where's he going? They don't know. He's talking about heaven. And uh, so Thomas is the one who spoke up again. Not Peter. Thomas spoke up and said, Lord, we don't, we don't know where you're going. How can we know how to get there? Well, we don't even know where you're going. And um, so the place we don't know. And... Um, Anyway, that, that famous passage, that was Doubting Thomas, the man we called Thomas, Doubting Thomas. He was a faithful follower of Jesus. So what happened to him? How did he go from follower to doubter? How did that become his claim to fame? Well, I can tell you that Thomas was having a bad week. I don't know if you had a bad week. Maybe you had a fender bender. Maybe you, you came down with a cold. Somebody infected you. <laughs> Uh, maybe you got bad news from the doctor, you got fired. I don't know. Whatever happened to your week, I can guarantee it wasn't as bad as Thomas's week because the man that he believed was the Messiah has just been executed. Well, that's a bad week. Worst week ever in his mind. He doesn't know it's actually the best week ever in the history of the world. We know it. 
I love that fact that we have the whole story right here. We can just open that right up and we can read all of that. Well, they didn't have this yet and so they couldn't read it. They didn't know it was happening uh, until, until later on what happened. So he's having a bad week. First, he deserted Jesus. On the night that Jesus was arrested, what happened to Thomas? Where were all the disciples? Well, they bailed. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus gets arrested and they scatter. The only one that comes around at all is Peter. And that didn't go well at all. Peter denied Jesus three times and, and uh, swore, started using cuss words. I don't know the guy. I don't even know him, Peter said. And he's in a fearful panic. We'll get to that in just a minute. But he's at least there. The rest of the disciples bailed altogether. Thomas ran. Jesus died. Can you imagine the emotions that Thomas was experiencing? He was afraid and confused. He was ashamed, dismayed, and distressed. Thomas had followed Jesus for years, and now, at least in his mind, it all came crashing down. Then the desertion led to a delay. <laughs> in our passage for today, and I'll read this again in just a minute, the disciples were all together and Jesus made his first big appearance to the whole group of disciples, all except for Thomas. Thomas wasn't there. We don't know where he was or what he was doing and why he stayed away. For whatever reason, Thomas doesn't go back. He, he loses out and misses out on the fellowship of the apostle and he doesn't get to see Jesus when Jesus appeared. My son, my youngest son, Luke, is a senior in high school this year. He plays trumpet, loves trumpet. And I love that he loves the trumpet. And so Thursday night, he had his final uh, band concert, Christmas concert ever. Is he here? Sorry, my bad. Anyway, where, where is he? Oh, yeah, he's running the camera. Okay, all right. Okay, all right. He may switch me off here. And so I have a Sunday school class. I still call it Sunday school even though we meet on Thursday night because Thursday school sounds terrible. So we meet, uh, our Sunday school class meets on Thursday night at 6.30. And I said, because the concert starts at 6.30, I said, look, as soon as it's over, I'm going to go straight over there to catch your band because multiple bands perform. And, and sure enough, as soon as my Sunday school was done, I ran across the street and walked in. And as I'm going down the hall toward the auditorium, I can hear the applause. And I walked in and realized I had just missed his band. Just missed it. Yeah, just missed it. I feel bad enough. Imagine how Thomas felt. He gets back and the disciples say, hey, guess what you missed? <laughs> the greatest moment in history. We saw Jesus. He was resurrected. And uh, so needless to say, he didn't take that very well. It led to a denial. He said to the disciples, nah, I don't, I don't receive that. I don't believe you. I don't, I'm not, I'm, I don't, I'm not going to believe. I, I, I just can't, I can't believe it. I think you're all delusional. Whatever he said to them, he said, nope, not, not going to happen. And then it led to a demand. His demand was simply, until or unless I see him with my own eyes, but that's not enough. He says, not only do I have to see him personally before I will believe he's resurrected, I, I require, I have this demand. 
I'm going to, before I believe, I'm going to literally need to press my fingers into the holes in his hands and into the gash in his side. Which is interesting that he says that because it tells me that gash in his side is substantial. You know, it wasn't just a little poke, a little pinprick after he died. They, they rammed a spear, a Roman spear into his side. And it, so it probably cut him all open. And so he says, until I <coughs> stick my hand into that, into that gash, I'm not going to believe a thing. Wow, that's, that's pretty substantial. But then we see this, and this is a big turning point for, for Thomas, maybe for you and me too, if you're struggling with doubt. Thomas received a personal demonstration. Now, Jesus doesn't always do this, but he did it for Thomas. Uh, he, he waits there, uh, Thomas does, and Jesus appeared a week later. If you look with me in our passage for today, John chapter 20, verse 24, I'll go ahead and read the whole thing to you. <clears throat> now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my head into his side, I will not believe it. Well, that's, that's a pretty high uh, demand. Uh, verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with him. <clears throat> Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Uh, I'm surprised Jesus, again, Jesus missed this opportunity that you and I, men, would have taken an advantage of. I wouldn't have said, Peace be with you. I would have said, Thomas, you missed it. <laughs> you, you, you missed it. Uh, I don't like your attitude. He doesn't say that. What he says to them is, Peace be with you. That's verse 26. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now that sounds kind of harsh, except that you have to know when he said, peace be with you. I don't think he's really talking to the other disciples. They'd already seen him resurrected. They had all kinds of peace. The only one that didn't have peace in the room was Thomas. Peace be with you. Verse 28, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. By the way, just on a little footnote, I find myself asking the question, why did Thomas miss the first appearance of Jesus? Jesus, in his sovereignty, because at the moment of the resurrection, he reclaimed all of his deity. His omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his transcendence. So he already knew what was going to happen. And he could have led in the heart of, of, of doubting Thomas to be there with the rest of the disciples. And Thomas didn't even have to know why he was going to meet with them. It's just that that's how God works sometimes. He leads and directs in the life of people. We're learning that in the book of Esther, if you've been with us on Wednesday nights. God does that. He could have done that. But he allowed Thomas to not be there. Why? I think it was for this statement here at the end. Because you've seen me, you believe, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We have not seen the resurrected Jesus for the last 2,000 years. Unless you count that guy who saw his image on his toast. This <laughs> sold for like $30,000 on eBay, some crazy amount. That's messed up. Anyway... 
He hasn't been here. The next time you see him, by the way, it won't be, it won't be on toast. He'll be coming down through the clouds. And so um, um, we haven't seen him. And so Jesus, I think, is, is providing this statement, not just for Thomas, but for us mostly, to say, Thomas believes because he's seen me, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus is just saying, you guys are going to have to have faith. We have to have faith. You don't have to have a lot of faith. Jesus said, you, if you have a faith as small as a mustard seed, a speck of faith is enough. It's all you need. But you do have to have some faith. God wants us to have faith in him. So a week goes by and there was no appearance of Jesus. We don't know what Thomas was thinking about but it could not have been a good week. I guarantee this, after he had that first conversation with the, the disciples, or they had it with him, throughout the week, I guarantee every one of them, one at a time, either come to him or he goes to them, and he says, okay, tell me what happened. What did you see? What did you see? And he's comparing their stories to see, because he's curious. <clears throat> but he won't believe until he sees. It had to have been the longest week of his life. Of course, Jesus knew Thomas's heart. He knew his doubts, and he could have condemned him for it. He could have removed him as a, an apostle and said, look, you're, you're a doubter. I don't want any doubters in my group. Get out of here. I'll replace you with somebody else. He could have done that. They replaced Judas with someone else. It was between two men. He could have just taken those two men, got rid of Judas and doubting Thomas, and, and still had 12 disciples. But Jesus doesn't do that. He's very kind, actually. Peace be with you instead. He gives them the proof he needs. It's important to know that Jesus was not offended or angered by his request and openly pre presents himself so that Thomas can touch his wounds and know for sure it doesn't take but a moment when he sees him, all of that melts away. And Thomas says, oh my Lord. You and I are doubters. We live in a world that needs to be doubted. You should doubt everything. I shared with you a few weeks ago the bad theology of the week, and that was predicated or, or motivated by a terrible meme that I saw on Facebook. It was a theological meme, and it was just a lie. It was a bold-faced lie written by another Christian who thought by lying they were going to help people come to Christ. And maybe I'll show it to you one day when I cool off. But it's just terrible theology. And I'm amazed. All the comments that people were just jumping on the bandwagon. I thought, do you guys even own a Bible? Have you? <laughs> if you Google that for three seconds, you'll know that that meme is a lie. Do, do you just accept everything that you hear? It's very frustrating, as you noticed. <laughs> But you and I have reason to doubt so much of what we see and read online and in the news. It is all processed and presented to us with an agenda in mind. But there's more than enough reason to believe that Jesus was, in fact, raised from the dead. He was crucified. He was dead and buried. The tomb was empty. He was seen by many people. And the apostles were changed in radical ways after that Easter. But still, people often doubt. Like Thomas, they have sticking points. For Thomas, there were several of these sticking points, these issues that he had where he just couldn't believe. 
First, many scholars believe that Thomas, in fact, all the disciples included, did not understand the identity of Jesus. Now, this boggles the mind because they spent every waking hour with him for three years. You would think they would figure it out. When they saw him walking on the water, you'd think they'd figure it out. When he allowed Peter to walk on the water, you'd think they would have figured it out. When he fed those multitudes, not on one or but two occasions, you would have think they go, oh, this guy's more than Messiah. When he just got up out of the boat taking a nap and he just waved his hand and calmed the storm, just like that, you would have thought they would have thought, man, okay, this is more than Messiah. This is this is deity here. This, this, only God can do that. When he resurrected Lazarus from the dead, been dead four days, it was the third one he resurrected or that we have a record of. This is the only one at four days. The impossible, only God can do that. Only God can do that. You would think they would know the identity of Jesus, but they still had not figured it out. Not till they saw him in that room after the resurrection. Secondly, they did not understand Jesus' true mission. Again, been with him for three years. You would have think they would have got it. He told them over and over again, but he, they did not get it. They were thinking worldly, politically, even militarily, and were not comprehending with Jesus or what Jesus actually came to do, to die on the cross for your sins and my sins. They didn't get it. Not one of them. When they went to Jerusalem that last week, or as he's tried, or as they, they, they perhaps saw him in the distance, being nailed to a cross. None of them said, well, you know, he said he was, this was going to happen. Oh, well, you know, actually it's a good day because he's dying for the sins of the world. Nope, they didn't have a clue. Not a clue. None. Zero. They didn't understand his mission. If you don't get the mission of Christ, it's going, Christianity and the Bible is going to look weird to you. Jesus died for you. He did it on purpose. There's a reason Third, whatever they were doing, the disciples were reaching, or excuse me, were reacting out of fear. This plays a big role. I told you that Peter, who was willing to die with Jesus, he just bragged about it hours earlier at the Last Supper, and Jesus then prophesied to him, hey, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me actually three times. No, he just couldn't believe that, and then he denied him three times. Why? Because he was paralyzed in fear. Fear just destroys. It's devastating to your life and my life. Oh, how many things, for you and for me, by the way, because I'm an introvert, how many of those things we're going to find out on Judgment Day as we stand before God? How many things that we should have said and we didn't say to people because we were afraid? How many opportunities we missed to share the love of God with other people because we were afraid? How many opportunities we didn't take? How many mission trips we didn't go on? How many, how many activities and uh, ministries did we miss out on just because we're afraid? Oh, goodness. Fear paralyzes, and they were truly paralyzed, and certainly Thomas as well. They were reacting out of fear. They were scared to death. When Jesus was crucified, they were shocked. They were stunned. They were blindsided. Everything had gone wrong, in their opinion. Of course, they were wrong. And now they did not know what was going to happen next. In that day, the followers of a rebel were often rounded up and killed as well once the rebel was killed. And so they were hiding, expecting a knock at the door any day by soldiers, and they would just run out and crucify them. Happened all the time. Soldiers didn't care anything about that. They would just do it freely. So they were afraid. They thought plan A had failed. Of course, 
Their plan A had failed, not God's plan A. God doesn't have plan B, by the way. He only has one plan, plan A. That's God's plan. And we have like 20 plans after that. <laughs> B, C, D, you know, whatever's in the alphabet. But God only has one plan, God's plan, plan A. They thought plan A had failed. And they had no plan B. They didn't know what to do except hide in fear. Of course, fear and faith don't go together. But for all the disciples, including Thomas, their doubts ended the moment they encountered the resurrected Christ. There's something about seeing Jesus resurrected that changes the attitude. <laughs> then they got it. The fear was gone. The deity of Jesus was evident. The purpose of the cross made sense, and Jesus gave them clear direction on what they were to do after he ascended into heaven. They got it, finally. I'm surprised that he didn't say that to them instead of peace be with you. He, he could have said, don't you get it? <laughs> Told you so. <laughs> he didn't listen. Listen, do you ever doubt? Do you ever doubt? Do you ever doubt that the Bible is the true word of God? You're, you, we are just slammed constantly with this, this liberal mindset that the Bible is a horrible, racist, awful, terrible book and all these kind of slanders and blah, 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 blah. Do you doubt? Well, you're in good company. Adam, Eve, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, David, Elijah, John the Baptist, Thomas, and so many others in the Bible struggle with doubt in their life. Elijah was so discouraged in his doubt, he just ran out and hid under a tree out in the middle of nowhere and said, God, kill me, I'm done. He just couldn't take that Jezebel anymore. He was frightened of her. The disciples were sincere people, by the way. Thomas was a good man, but they doubted. So how do we do that? How do we get past our own sticking points, our own doubts? Well, let me give you a, a few simple reasons today and we'll go. Number one, and I just wrote these up from, from out of my heart and so I have no statistical uh, credibility for this, uh, but I wrote it down this way anyway. Realize that 98%, again, that's, that's my analysis, <clears throat> which came out of the thin blue sky, Realize that 98%, by the way, I'm right. <laughs> Realize 98% of all the skeptics and the unbelievers in our country have an agenda. You have to know the junk you read online, the liberal declarations in the media, it's all due to a liberal agenda. That is, their claims about Jesus do not stem from an objective, neutral desire to know the truth. On the contrary, Christ and Scripture itself stands opposed to what they want to do in this world and what they want from this world. So they seek to discredit Christianity in any way they can and Christians in any way they can. For the last 2,000 years, Christianity has gone through a constant smear campaign by people who hate God and hate our Savior. And so they're going to hate you too. In his last conversation with the disciples before he was arrested, that same night there in John, Jesus said to his disciples and to you and I in John chapter 15, verse 18, he says this to them, if the world hates you, he's preparing them now, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. Let me say that again. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. And who doesn't want to be loved? And so we sell out our Savior 
to come over, cross over to the dark side of this wicked world. As it is, Jesus says, you don't belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. So always keep that in mind. Don't, don't, don't let the hatred of this world cause you to doubt. If you think we Christians aren't objective, perhaps that is a fair assessment. Faith requires us to take a step. That's why it's called a step of faith. But you would be naive to think that those who declare Christianity uh, that is, it's for stupid people or the gullible, they are not being objective. On the contrary, they're trying to sell you something. And it is a worldview that is advantageous to them. Next, if you're struggling with your faith, I want to give you a little challenge today. Do you really think that God is going to give you great faith on a silver platter? Do you think he's going to force it on you? No. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. God doesn't force people to do anything. Now, you and I don't have the right to reject God, by the way, but we do have the choice. God created you to choose. I can't make that decision for you. I can't make it for my kids. I won't be able to make it for my grandkids if I live long enough and they give me grandkids, although I'll do my best, by the way. They're going to have to make that decision on their own in the end. God's not going to give it to you easy. I've learned that an easy faith is not a very deep faith at all. And he won't force it on you. In Acts chapter 8, Philip met an Ethiopian eunuch on the road. One of the great stories of the Bible. Uh, Philip, because of that, God said, I want you to go out on the, on the south road, uh, on the desert road, which is a bizarre thing. So we think of Philip as the first foreign missionary because he's the first one that left the Jerusalem area to go share the gospel. Now, God didn't tell him where he was going. He just said, go down on this road. And he didn't say what he was going to do when he got there. He didn't even say where there was. He said, just go south on the road. Now, it's a bizarre command. It's just bizarre. Because if you're going to be a missionary, you go where the people are. There's no people on the south road. Uh, let me tell you, if you go to Jerusalem today and you go south, uh, you, you, I hope you brought water. <laughs> There's nothing out there. It's like in Texas, instead of north-south, it's east-west. You're pretty good till you get to Abilene. Now, once you leave Abilene, there's Midland, Odessa, but after that, there's just nothingness. There's just, uh, you better bring water in case you break down, because there's nothing. For miles and miles and miles and miles and miles west Texas, there's just not a whole lot there. And it's, that's the desert road. He says, I want you to go south on the desert road. Looks like Mars down there. And so Philip did exactly that. He's driving along. And, or walking along, or whatever his transport was, and uh, he sees a, an Ethiopian eunuch there. Now, one guy, there's one guy. Well, it turns out God wanted him to preach to one guy. One guy. Because that one guy isn't just sitting there snoring. He's not checking his Facebook or his Twitter account or whatever, whatever you do. Uh, I think it's X now. What kind of stupid name is X? Anyway, He's not doing that. What is he doing? He's got the Word of God open. He unscrolled it and he's reading it and he doesn't know what he's reading. He needs somebody to tell him. And God has brilliantly prearranged this as God always does so that Philip is coming up at the exact moment the guy is wondering, I wonder what all this means. And so 
Philip comes up and he says to Philip, what, what, what is this? What, what does this mean? I want to know. Here's, here's the point. This guy, this Ethiopian eunuch, who probably went back to Ethiopia and shared the gospel with no telling how many thousands of people, because God's in control, he wanted an entire nation to hear about him. And the first nation to hear about him, interestingly enough, apparently is Ethiopia. Fascinating. Anyway, so the guy's there, God knows it, and the guy is searching. He's searching. He doesn't know, but he's, he's looking for God. God doesn't have to push it on him. Doesn't have to prepare Philip with some brilliant persuasive argument that he argues with him for days on end or anything like that. The guy is reaching out. He's actively seeking God. And when we ask God, when we really seek God, he promises to meet us. Among other passages, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13 says this. God says this. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. God's not going to push himself on you. You've got to step out. You've got to reach out and say, God, I need some help here. I need understanding here. Are you really there? You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I believe that God will meet with you. Lee Strobel was a journalist and an atheist who set out to disprove Christianity's famous course. But he did so objectively and ended up coming to faith in Christ. In one of his books called The Case for Faith, he quoted a scientist named James Tour. He was the head of Nanoscience Center at Rice University, and he said this. He said, I build molecules for a living. I can't begin to tell you how difficult that job is. Yeah, I don't even comprehend that. I stand in awe of God, he says, because of what he has done through his creation. Only a rookie who knows nothing about science would say science takes away from faith. If you really study science, it will bring you closer to God. Sir Lionel Lacou, who was another skeptic who searched for and found truth in God, Look, who was the greatest attorney who ever lived. He was in the Guinness Book of World Records for winning more murder trials than anyone had ever won in history. I don't know if I'd want to be in there for that, but he is. He was a brilliant legal mind and received many honors. He was also a skeptic, a religious skeptic. But he took his monumental legal knowledge and applied it to investigating the historical record of Jesus' resurrection. In summary, even though he was a skeptic, but in his conclusion, he stated, I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. That happened to a man named Viggo Olson, one of the first Christians to serve in the country of Bangladesh. Olson was a brilliant surgeon. And at one time, he and his wife Joan were skeptics who struggle with the whole idea of believing in God at all. You might call them at best agnostics. They couldn't believe because they thought modern science proved that the Bible was based on mythology. But they didn't let skepticism stop them cold in their tracks. Instead, they let curiosity propel them toward the truth. They sought answers wholeheartedly. They began to reach out to God. They began to investigate their questions like, does science disprove Christianity? Is, re is Jesus' resurrection true? As Olson committed himself to pursuing these questions, he came to the same conclusion that so many others have. 
The record of Jesus is true. And advances in many areas of science point toward a creator who looks a lot like the God of the Bible. It was both scientific and historical evidence that led Vargo Olson and his wife to become Christians. Isn't that interesting? They wrote about their journey in a book called The Agnostic Who Dared to Search. In it, Olson said he and his wife had to take the risk of discovering the truth. After they did, and after they had committed their lives to Christ, they prayed an unusual prayer. He said that he prayed a prayer asking God to send them to a place with no doctors and no Christians. God answered that prayer, and they moved to Bangladesh. During their 33 years there, they founded a hospital where countless people found healing and love and hope. They also helped start 120 churches in Bangladesh. Was it hard? Of course it was. But in an interview, Olson declared, we wouldn't have missed it for the world. In my opinion, finding the purpose for which God made you, whatever it may be, and then fully pursuing it is simply the very best way to live. If you're struggling with your faith today, I challenge you. I plead with you. Reach out to God wholeheartedly, like Viggo Olson did, like Lee Strobel did. As you do, take comfort in knowing that God is not hiding. He's waiting, waiting for you to see him. Remember the story of the prodigal son. And I know I always share this, it's very important. The father had a son. Of course, the son really is very much like you and I, and the father is a reference to God, and the son decided he wanted his inheritance early, which you don't ever do, and then he went off into the town and squandered it on wild living. His father, being God, knew exactly where his son was and what his son was doing. He knew his son had spent it all. He knew his son was slopping pigs, the story goes. He knew that his son was living in poverty, and he could have, because he knew where his son was, because he's God, could have gone and gotten his son any day. He could have walked right in to where he was slopping pigs and said, son, come home, please come home, please come home. But he didn't do that. He waited. The son needed to take the step to come home. And as he's coming home, though, his father is waiting on the front porch and he sees his son, and he runs out to him and hugs him and rejoices, and they celebrate. God may be waiting on you. Will you let him find you? Pray with me. Father, we come to you today, and we acknowledge sometimes we struggle with doubt. This world puts it in our mind. We see it everywhere. We don't want to be called names. We don't want to be ostracized. We don't want to be the bad guy, and so we just kind of quietly doubt. We don't want to be known as stupid, and that's what they're saying that Christians are, because we don't believe in their version of science or evolution or whatever it is that we're supposed to believe in, and so they call us names, and we doubt. Or life comes and hits us very hard. We get a bad prognosis from the doctor. We have problems in our family, among our friends, our careers, not going anywhere. We just feel frustrated in life. And we doubt. 
or like Thomas. Father, I pray that there would be an encounter this week, maybe today, maybe now, with our resurrected Savior. If we'll call out with all of our heart, you're there. But we have to take that step. You, you call us to take that step. And we'll seek you with all of our heart. We will find you. May that be today. As you're praying, no one's looking around. Do you doubt? Will you be willing to seek here now? Jesus has said himself, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Would you seek right here, right now? Maybe God is calling you or your family to join with First Baptist Church and you just need to come down and say, Pastor, we'd like to join. We had a couple in the early service. It's been going here for 15 years. Never joined. And today was the day. Maybe God is calling you and your family to serve your Savior here. Maybe you want to give your life to Christ. Did what this young lady did this morning. Be a candidate for baptism. Surrender yourself to Him. You just want to come up and say, Pastor, I want to, I want to give my life to Jesus. If God is calling, maybe you just want to come and kneel and pray. God's waiting. Would you stand? No one's looking around. All heads are bowed. All eyes are closed. And as you stand and as you pray right now, this is for you. You come.